Back in episode 27, I talked about some snakes with medically significant venom, meaning that in the event that one of these snakes bites you, you're probably going to need medical attention. Now, in that episode, I pointed out that snakes with medically significant venom make up just 7%, so about 21 total, of the 600 or so species of snake in the world. So really, any snake you encounter is much more likely to be of the non-medically significant variety. In truth, many of the other 93% of snakes produce venom, but the venom of these snakes is weak and they lack an efficient delivery method. So for the sake of simplicity, we're going to call those snakes non-venomous. So let's talk about a few of the more common non-venomous snakes that you're likely to come across. And believe me when I tell you that they are much more afraid of you than you are of them. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. Now, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Snakes get a lot of hate. In fact, I suspect that few animals are as misunderstood or inspire as much fear as snakes, except for maybe spiders. People don't often take the time to learn how to identify the snakes they might find, and they fear that all snakes are, quote, dangerous, unquote, or they just think they're creepy or icky. Now, unfortunately, that means that many people's reaction to finding a snake any snake, whether it's venomous or not, is to kill it, or at least to reinforce the idea that snakes are bad by making dumb statements like, the only good snake is a dead snake. I saw stark evidence of this on social media once when a person posted a picture of a harmless black rat snake on a wildlife page with the question, can anyone tell me what kind of snake this is? I killed it with my shovel just to be safe. Now, the truth is that snakes do a lot of good in terms of controlling populations of rodents and other pests, and no snake native to North America wants anything to do with you. You are way too big for them to eat. So let's take a look at some of the more common non-venomous snakes you're likely to encounter. One of the most widely distributed snakes in North America is the garter snake. There's 35 different species of garter snake, and they're found throughout North America, from the subarctic plains of Canada down to Costa Rica. Appearance is going to vary somewhat, but generally speaking, they have round pupils, a slender build, keeled scales, which means each scale has a ridge down the center, and a pattern of longitudinal stripes that may or may not include spots, although some don't have stripes at all. They also vary in length. They can be anywhere from a foot and a half long to a little over four feet. Their wide distribution is thanks to a varied diet, which helps them adapt to different habitats. Garter snakes can be found in woodlands, fields, grasslands, and lawns, but they're never far from water. Often there's an adjacent wetland stream or small pond nearby with tall weeds. This reflects the fact that amphibians comprise a large part of their diet. Garter snakes, like all snakes, are carnivores, and they'll eat anything they can overpower, including worms, slugs, leeches, lizards, amphibians, including frog eggs, minnows, and even small rodents. One species of garter snake, the ribbon snake, is especially fond of frogs and toads, including tadpoles, and eats them despite their strong chemical defenses. They're actually one of only a few snake species that prey on frogs and toads. 
Now, it was long thought that they were completely non-venomous, but it was discovered in the early 2000s that they do, in fact, produce a weak neurotoxic venom. But again, this venom is mild, and they don't have an efficient way to deliver it. In humans, at worst, some bruising and swelling has been reported from people who have been bitten. Now, interestingly, there's evidence that garter snakes and newts share an evolutionary link in their resistance to tetrodotoxin, the toxic substance produced by some salamanders, implying coevolution between predator and prey. Garter snakes feeding on toxic newts can also retain these toxins in their liver for weeks, which technically makes those snakes both venomous and poisonous. If feeling threatened, a garter snake will generally just try to escape, and if cornered, it may coil and strike, but typically in this situation, it will hide its head and flail its tail around. They're also well known for discharging a musky-smelling secretion from a gland near the cloaca, a common defense mechanism in snakes. I've caught and released many garter snakes in my life. I've only been bitten once, but I've been musked almost every time. Hawks, crows, egrets, herons, cranes, raccoons, otters, and other snake species like coral snakes and king snakes all will eat garter snakes. Juvenile garter snakes even get eaten by shrews and frogs. Garter snakes often brumate together during the winter, and they begin mating as soon as they emerge from brumation in the spring. They have a complex system of pheromonal communication, and males and females produce distinct pheromones. But some male garter snakes produce both male and female pheromones. Why, you ask? The answer is kleptothermy, a fantastic word that means stealing body heat. A male snake producing female pheromones tricks other male snakes into attempting to mate and allows that snake to steal these other males' body heat, which, as a cold-blooded animal, means the thieving snake is now more active. Male snakes giving off both male and female pheromones have been shown to garner more copulations than normal males in the mating balls that form at the den when females enter the mating melee. Now, your next question is probably, what the heck's a mating ball? When the females come out of brumation, their pheromones, well, they drive the boys wild. This can lead to intense male versus male competition and the formation of a mating ball, literally a ball of up to 25 male snakes attempting to mate with a single female. After mating, the female leaves the area to find food and a good place to give birth. They might travel up to 11 miles from the brumation site. Female garter snakes can store the male sperm for years before fertilization. Gestation period is two to three months, and garter snakes are oviviviparous. They carry their eggs in their abdomen and give birth to anywhere from 10 to 70 live young, which are independent as soon as they're born. In the fall, these offspring will follow the pheromone trails of their elders back to the brumation sites. On a bit of a side note, the Narcisse Snake Dens, which are about an hour north of Winnipeg in Manitoba, Canada, is the brumation site for an estimated 70,000 red-sided garter snakes. In late summer and early autumn, you can witness the fall migration as the snakes gather to spend the winter in the limestone caverns of this area. Spring emergence occurs when the snow melts, sometime in late April or early May. After mating, they disperse into the nearby marshes. It's the largest known concentration of this particular type of snake in the world. Another common snake east of the Great Plains from Canada to Central America is the Decay's brown snake. 
Brown snakes are small, generally less than a foot long, and maxing out at about 18 inches, which often leads people to think that they're juveniles or babies of another species. You might have guessed from their name that they're usually brown. They have a light stripe down the center of their back, bordered by black spots on each side, often in a checkerboard pattern. Their underside is white or tan, and they have a black spot on the top of their head, black sideburns, black spot under the eye, and black marks that look kind of like parentheses on each side of the neck. The scales of the brown snake are keeled. Like garter snakes, brown snakes often brumate with other snakes, even snakes of other species. Mating generally takes place shortly after emerging from brumation, although brown snakes will occasionally mate in the fall. Gestation is three to four months, and again, like garter snakes, brown snakes are ovoviviparous, giving birth to between three and thirty, three and a half inch long live young late in the summer. The young may stay near their mother shortly after birth, but she doesn't provide any care. They're on their own. Now, if you're a gardener, these are good snakes to have around. They feed primarily on worms, slugs, and snails. They actually have specialized jaws that help them remove snails from their shells. Brown snakes are primarily nocturnal, so it's rare to see one out and about during the day. In the daytime, they shelter under leaf litter, wood and rock piles, tarps, or other yard debris. Interestingly, more brown snakes are found in human-disturbed areas than they are in natural habitats. Like garter snakes, they may produce a foul-smelling musk if handled, but otherwise they can't hurt you. Even if they tried to bite you, which they rarely do, their heads are too small for them to even break your skin. Another fairly common, though rarely seen, snake is the ring-necked snake. Like brown snakes, ring-necked snakes are primarily nocturnal. They average 10 to 15 inches long, although some can exceed 2 feet. They have smooth scales, not keeled, and their back is a solid color, either olive, brown, bluish-gray, or smoky black, broken only by a distinct yellow, red, or yellow-orange band behind their head, hence the name ring-necked snake. On their bellies, most ring-necked snakes are yellow-orange or red, broken up by crescent-shaped black spots along the margins. When threatened, these snakes will flip onto their backs, displaying their brightly colored bellies, and engage in exaggerated tail coiling. The idea is to distract a predator from the head. They generally won't attempt to bite if caught, but like the other two snakes I've already talked about, they will release a foul-smelling musk from their anal glands. Ring-necked snakes are found in a wide variety of habitats. They prefer areas with abundant cover and denning locations at elevations below 7,000 feet. Dens are often shared communally and are located in an existing subsurface crevasse or hole deep enough to avoid freezing temperatures in the winter. In hot weather, they shelter in burrows or under rocks or wood scraps. Ring-necked snakes usually mate in the spring, although again some species may mate in the fall and delay fertilization. Females attract males by secreting pheromones. Once the male finds a female, he starts by moving his closed mouth along the female's body. Then the male bites the female around her neck ring, maneuvering to align their bodies so he can fertilize the eggs. It's all very romantic, I'm sure. Ring-neck snakes are viviparous. In the early summer, females lay between 3 and 10 eggs in loose, aerated soils under a rock or in a rotted log. These eggs will hatch in August or September, and after hatching, juveniles fend for themselves without any parental care. 
The diet of the ringneck snake consists primarily of small salamanders, earthworms, and slugs, but they also sometimes eat lizards, frogs, and the juveniles of other snake species. Basically, whatever's most available. Michigan populations of ringneck snakes, for example, feed almost exclusively on red-backed salamanders. Ringneck snakes use a combination of constriction and envenomation to capture prey. They don't have a true venom gland, but they do have an analogous structure called the Duvorny's gland, derived from the same tissue and located directly behind the eye. Most subspecies of ringneck snake are rear-fanged, with the last maxillary teeth on both sides of the upper jaw being slightly longer and channeled. The venom drains out in an opening behind the maxillary tooth. Ringneck snakes first strike and secure their prey using constriction. Then they maneuver their mouths forward, ensuring that the rear fang punctures the skin to allow the venom to enter their prey's tissue. Ringneck snakes are rarely aggressive to larger predators, which indicates that their venom evolved as a feeding strategy rather than a defensive strategy. The next two snakes I want to tell you about, rat snakes and black racers, are hard to tell apart as adults. Adults of both species are black with white lips, chin, and throat. One of the main differences is that rat snakes have keeled scales. Racers have smooth scales. Adult rat snakes are the longest snake in North America, averaging between three and a half and six feet long. Black racers come close, though. They can reach five and a half feet. Both species are viviparous, and juveniles of both species have a pattern that fades as they mature. Black racers are about six inches long when they hatch, but rat snakes are 11 to 16 inches long. Rat snakes prefer heavily wooded areas. They're constrictors, which means they coil around their prey and tighten their grip until the prey can no longer circulate blood and die before being eaten. They're generally ambush predators, feeding on mice, voles, and rats, or any other small vertebrate they can capture. Other prey includes other snakes, frogs, lizards, moles, chipmunks, squirrels, juvenile rabbits, juvenile possums, songbirds, and bird eggs. Now, many snakes can climb trees, but rat snakes excel at it, which is one thing to hear and another thing to witness. A few years ago, I came across a rat snake clinging to a large tree about five feet off the ground, and it was headed down. Somebody I used to work with likened it to having 100-pack abs and using them to grip the tree. Cavity-nesting bird species are especially prevalent in the rat snake's diet. The western rat snake has been noted to be one of the top predators at purple martin colonies, and eastern rat snakes are known to get into bluebird houses. Black racers are habitat generalists, but prefer to spend their time near forest edges, fields, or wetlands, hunting and hiding in the grass and other vegetation. Their diet is similar to the rat snakes and includes a variety of small animals like insects, lizards, moles, mice, other snakes, and even frogs. They don't subdue their prey by constriction like the rat snake. Instead, they'll bite the prey, then crush and suffocate it against the ground before consuming it, sometimes still alive. They often attack near water, subduing their prey by drowning it. When startled, rat snakes may freeze and wrinkle themselves into a series of kinks. If they feel further threatened, they may flee or vibrate their tail, making a sound like a rattlesnake. They also produce a foul-smelling musk, which they release onto predators if picked up. They spread the musk with their tails to help deter the threat. 
If cornered or provoked, rat snakes are known to stand their ground and become aggressive. Counterattacks on large birds of prey, often by snakes larger than five feet, have resulted in violent, prolonged struggles. Using its agility and the strength of its muscular coils, rat snakes are sometimes able to overwhelm and even kill formidable avian predators like red-tailed hawks, great-horned owls, and red-shouldered hawks. Racers usually depend on their speed to escape predators, hence the name racer. If cornered, they're also known to invoke their inner rattlesnake and vibrate their tails. They're not venomous, but they do have sharp teeth and can inflict a painful bite if they're provoked. Now, people, especially in the South, tend to think that any snake they see in the water is a venomous cottonmouth, also known as a water moccasin. But the truth is that all snakes can swim, but the common water snake is one that makes a habit of it, and it's commonly misidentified as a cottonmouth. The common water snake averages about two and a half feet long, but it can get as big as four and a half feet. Color-wise, they can be brown, gray, reddish, or brownish-black, with dark crossbands on the neck and dark blotches on the rest of the body, which, again, often leads people to misidentify it as a cottonmouth or even a copperhead. Water snakes tend to darken with age, and the pattern becomes more obscure. The common water snake is found throughout eastern and central North America, from southern Ontario and southern Quebec in the north to Texas and Florida in the south. As you might expect, water snakes inhabit streams, lakes, ponds, and wetlands. They're active both day and night. During the day, they can often be seen basking on rocks, stumps, or brush. Also during the day, they hunt among plants at the water's edge, looking for small fish, tadpoles, frogs, worms, leeches, crayfish, large insects, salamanders, other snakes, sometimes even turtles, small birds, and mammals. At night, they tend to concentrate on minnows and other small fish resting in shallow water. They hunt using both smell and sight. Water snakes are ovoviviparous, giving birth to live young. They can have as many as 30, but the average is 8. Like many other snakes, the young are born between August and October, and there's no parental care. Water snakes have a lot of predators, including birds, raccoons, possums, foxes, snapping turtles, other snakes, and of course, the worst of them all, humans. But the common water snake is known to defend itself vigorously when threatened. If picked up by a predator or person, it will bite repeatedly and release excrement and musk. The saliva of the water snake contains a mild anticoagulant, which can cause the bite to bleed more, but... Otherwise, they pose little risk to humans, especially if left alone. Now, if there were an Academy Award for most dramatic snake, the last snake I'm going to talk about would be the winner. That snake is the hognose snake. Now, there are snakes known as hognose snakes found in Madagascar and South America, but they're unrelated to both each other and the hognose snakes we have in North America. Hognose snakes can grow one to four feet long. They have a stout body with a head that's slightly distinct from the neck. They have keeled scales, and their color pattern is extremely variable. Western hognose snakes are usually sandy-colored with black and white markings, while the colors of the eastern hognose snake can include reds, greens, oranges, browns, or black, depending on locality. They're sometimes blotched and sometimes solid-colored. Their most distinguishing characteristic is their upturned snout, which is thought to help them dig in sandy soils. Hognose snakes prefer upland sandy pine forests, fields, and forest edges. 
They're viviparous, laying an average of 25 eggs in small soil depressions, abandoned mammal burrows, or under rocks. Like ringneck snakes, they're known to utilize communal nesting sites. Hognose snakes are rear-fanged. They feed primarily on rodents and lizards, but the eastern hognose snake prefers amphibians, especially toads. This snake is resistant to the toxins secreted by toads thanks to an enlarged adrenal gland, which secrete large amounts of hormones which counteract the toad's powerful skin toxins. In addition, the venom of the eastern hognose has evolved to be more amphibian-specific than other North American hognose species. Humans bitten by a hognose snake may experience swelling, itching, or mild tingling. Now, that said, you would have to work really hard to get bitten by a hognose snake. When threatened, the hognose snake will flatten its neck, raise its head off the ground, and hiss, making it look much more like a venomous snake. This habit has led to it sometimes being called a puff adder. Now, it may feign an attack, appearing to strike, but with its mouth closed, more of a high-speed headbutt. Hognose snakes are extremely reluctant to bite. If pretending to be scary doesn't deter a would-be predator, the hognose snake will often roll onto its back and play dead, with its mouth open and tongue lolling, emitting a foul musk from the cloaca. If the snake is turned upright while in this state, it will often roll back over, as if insisting that it really is dead. And with that, we'll bring this episode to a close. Thank you as always for listening. Please click those like and follow buttons. It's free, and it can potentially help me out a lot. If you want to support future episodes of the podcast, here's how you can do that. Get yourself some sweet Dispatches from the Forest merchandise. Check out the Dispatches from the Forest merch store at cafepress.com forward slash Dispatches from the Forest. There's t-shirts, water bottles, hoodies, and much, much more. Check out our Patreon page and consider becoming a patron. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash Dispatches from the Forest. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do that through PayPal. Dispatches from the forest at gmail.com is both my PayPal address and how you can contact me if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes. For additional content, follow Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.